0: Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's nice to, have to come down this that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Oh. Mm. Cracker, that's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter podcast. G'day and welcome to this week's episode of The Educated Hunter. This week it's yours truly and my partner in crime, Curran Island. We had a bit of a catch up over the phone, just testing a a wee bit of our new gear to see if this kind of format's going to work. Good news is it actually sounds great. So that means going forward we're going to be able to have much better access to some good quality guests for you all around the country and around the world so stay tuned for that that's good news in the short term here's a chat that Curran and I had talking about a few of the I guess current issues within New Zealand hunting plus a few one or two issues that have come up in the media lately and just a general chew the fat about my hunting season coming up here in British Columbia so hopefully it's interesting enough to hold your attention this week the educated hunter is brought to you by no one it's free enjoy it hope you're having a good one catch on the clearing
1: I might have gone on early. <laughs> I thought we were going on three.
0: What's one, two, three,
1: go. That's that's a trick. Perfect. That'll work. So how are you, mate? Good? I'm good, thank you. I've uh just just making the beginning through this mushroom coffee here. Getting yeah. started.
0: Yeah, I uh had a dig through my pantry. I can't find any more mushroom coffee, I'm out, so I'm just on straight straight instant. Mm.
1: <clears throat> I'm not not feeling the love in that. Eh?
0: Nah, it's a bit rough around the edges. Don't put... know what's
1: happened. I don't know what's happened to my standards, but I've definitely raised <clears throat> raised the level or two when it comes to coffee consumption. eh?
0: yeah, you've got the old New Zealand coffee snob deal going on. You wouldn't approve <laughs> of my my daily uh, Starbucks. Um, well, it's sort of become my office these days. To be honest with you. Well,
1: there's that, and I run the theory that I'm way too tight to pay for coffee too. So. <laughs> I, uh I'd rather I'd rather What is it Buy once and cry once At a good coffee And then Have it in the, in the cupboard Yeah good on you. So what's new in New Zealand pal I'm over here in
0: Vancouver Eagerly waiting for the uh, Proper hunting season to start Which hasn't Well beers are open But Doesn't really float my boat
1: No No I well, actually yeah, Oh on that I see a few of the boys From Ultimate OE Have Got on board with the beer So that's good Um but what's happening here in New Zealand? It's got cold quick this last week, especially down here in Central. Um, yeah, snow on the hills now, and ice on the truck in the morning, and that that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was always it was always coming, but it um, seems to have ramped up this last week. So,
0: which is good. I don't mind it. Yeah, there's a few uh, good looking tar showing up on the on the crack book.
1: Yeah, there is actually, um, actually, some really good tar this year, and I think. You know, like, I, the, the good thing with the tar stuff, and, I, you know, we started seeing it a year or two ago now, but, like, there's a, a real emphasis on age, you know, and guys are actually putting that in their wording, which I like, as in nine-year-old bull tar, ten-year-old bull tar, um, and then the measurement as a secondary sort of contributor, if you like, and, and I like that because, well, I'd like to think that that, that sort of characteristic has been part of their judgment before pulling the trigger. It may or may not be, I guess, but I, I like the idea that we're running that way.
0: Yeah, it's been encouraging, to be honest with you, and it's, as a result, you know, you're, you're starting to see some, I think, guys, with that mindset going into it, I want to shoot an old one. Um, I mean, generally, length is a byproduct of age anyway, so.
1: Hm. Um. Mm. Well, certainly, character is, too. You know, like, I know Stefan, he, um, he shot a nice ball, just During the week, you know, and it this, this is very poor wording for me because I don't believe it, but it went it only went 12 and a half, which you know, in today's I guess climate <coughs> may or may not be perceived as long, but you know, broomed down, um, heavy, old, you know, like so the character and it was far exceeding the length. I think that I think that's really cool.
0: Yeah, well, some of the best animals, well, the ones I've been most proud of for sure, even from a guiding perspective, have been um, the oldest ones. I, d- I don't know, I just seem to get. I get a real kick out of something that's, you know, particularly something that's lived in the mountains for eight, nine, ten years. There's a certain element of, um, I guess, respect and sort of admiration for something that can last that long in that kind of environment.
1: Certainly. Oh, I mean, you know, over over on your side of the world, there's hunters and predators, um, but then over here there's, there's hunters, but then there's also, you know, the the wireos and the culling and, and stuff like that, you know, so Animals with age definitely—they do, you know—they should be respected, I guess. Uh, but I, I think—I think also one of the other things that may or may not have changed, or certainly added to the climate of of people selecting older balls and heavier balls, and this this could be a big topic here. So, fringe yourself. This could be mushroom coffees kicking in already. Um, the pure fear of the fact that the tar now are about to be managed in numbers may have. Whether it be directly or not, meant that shooters are now not shooting young tar based on the fact that they there's another contributor in the fact that they could get killed anyway. If that makes sense, I don't know if I've worded that well. But you mean, you know, lots of the
0: pushing a little bit harder to get their trophy of a lifetime because they know it might um,
1: not last. Well, little part, but then also when they when they sneak up on a a six-year ball, they admire its quality and and they, and they don't seem to be shooting them and I could be wrong here but they don't seem to be shooting them in the fact that like well if we go ahead and shoot this one and then they the government come in and shoot a set amount of bull tar as well then we're really decimating this herd like so let's move on beyond this look for a better tar if he does or doesn't get shot well you know at least we've we haven't contributed to the demise um, in, in some sort of unwritten form if that makes sense and I think there's a little bit of good in that you know like um, well probably a lot of good in that but But a little bit of good in that, then maybe we're starting to see that we can coexist in a world with culling or management and still harvest good trophies. Yeah, and
0: it seems to be, I saw a post today from the New Zealand Tar Foundation um, talking about the, I guess, the reported numbers from the different blocks or they're they're even starting to call them management units, which is encouraging. And there seems to be, well, there seems to be some quite good numbers of uh, nannies getting shot. This year, at the ballot blocks as well, which is encouraging.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a hard one because the hunters would say, and, and arguably correctly, that they've always done that, and just never had any tool to manage, uh, measure it. Or, flip side, perhaps they are actually contributing more, um, and and that's what's been asked of them. Which is, so it's good that if it's you know it's been asked, and they're, and they're either doing it or beginning to do it, and they're recording the the data, so it's good.
0: Yeah, and I, I think from a a long-term sort of perspective as we continue on this, I don't want to call it a battle, but it really is a long-term sort of uh, negotiation or um, journey with, with Doc and trying to work towards a sort of a, a management plan that works for everybody. Uh, the more mm. the more that we can front up and say what we said what we were going to do and, and have the numbers to sort of back it up, um, the better off we'll be in the long run. You know, if we can get to a point where we can start funding some sort of independent scientific studies as well as sort of vegetation plots and all that kind of stuff to really start being able to turn around and say, look, this is the science behind it. This is what the carrying capacity is. It just becomes less likely that someone's going to be able to come in like Eugenie tried to do and say, there are this many tar. So we're going to shoot this many tar because that's what we say. We can turn around and say, well, actually, here's some... Stats and figures, which are scientifically gained and peer-reviewed.
1: Yep, and and I think we also need to be realistic in that, and that, in that per- perhaps there'll be some information or some of the results we're probably not going to like, and yep. they might have to go uh, more of them than, than we currently are defending for. Like, but I think as long as it's evidence-based, it's it's neutral in form of where it came from, and the result benefits as such all their parties, then then I think that's all we can really hope for in terms of longevity. Yeah. Because that's the game we're playing. We're playing a long game on this.
0: Well, it's it's good to see. I mean, it, my biggest fear was when it all turned to custard when the big colours announced that, you know, we'd get that initial surge of interest and and momentum and then it would sort of disappear into the ether and people would forget about them again and the next time that tar would come into the spotlight would be the next time they're going in to do a big cull but there seems to be a at least a a vocal contingent who are continuing on with that work which is good to see and i guess that's where all that money we raised is getting allocated to Be good to have a conversation with those guys, actually.
1: Yeah, it would be. Uh, Well, the thing is, like, I hundred percent agree. Like, it's you know, people you know are still doing the work behind the scenes. Uh, Me personally, I'd kind of argue that not not that there's enough being done, but there's enough highlighting of the work that's been done. I think there could be more to keep quote unquote rallying the troops. The biggest non-direct tar (laughs) influence that came out of that was the uniting of hunters across the board. Like, that was a real strength, and it was something that, and I've made it public before, but I think what the TAR Foundation did was they used a format that other clubs or organisations or foundations hadn't been using that well, which was the social media. Yeah. And they jumped on it and jumped on it well, and it rallied the troops. And now, unfortunately, you know, like, either – publicly again on social media or in private I'm starting to hear the murmurs of like well where did where did our money go and what did we actually end up with you know and what's actually the result because rightly or wrongly they're still culling some tar outside the exclusion zone then the science isn't there yet and 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 so forth and I don't have the answers for this stuff but what I guess the weakness I see is there needed to be more headlines and more more sharing of content other than just random bi-monthly like we're still on this don't lose sight of what we're doing like I think we could have fueled that fire and really kept people going in in terms of hunting interest not just the tar
0: Yeah I agree and it's an interesting kind of parallel when you compare you know the likes of the Tar Foundation, New Zealand Tar Foundation group which on Facebook like that group grew really quickly to probably around 8,000 members I think Um, during that period of real turmoil and we had all that momentum so that's sort of brought to together a group of people who can sort of stay in touch with that and then you've got the likes of the venison hunters and the um, big game hunting and all that kind of stuff, Facebook groups on Facebook which range anything from twenty to 50,000 members, you know, all that and then when, even when the TAR Foundation put up their latest, you know, their latest thing, it's still got a couple of hundred comments and 20 or so shares and all that kind of stuff so there's people actively engaging with it and if you compare mm. that to um, say the Game Animal Council who... I think that less than a thousand people follow them on Facebook. The last post they put up got like five reactions you know, an angry face, a sad face, and three likes and one share. Given that they're supposed to be, in theory, the voice of all New Zealand hunters, it's fair to say that yeah. they don't really have the ear of any New Zealand hunters. So, how they
1: are. Well, yeah, I guess I, I 100% agree. And I want to just skip back just to because the comment I made may or may not be taken out of context. Like, I understand when these guys like the TAR Foundation and that are voluntary and the NZDA guys, you know, like, and they're, they're doing a really great job and juggling their own time and their own stuff. So it's yeah, not yeah. a it's not a, an attack on why haven't they done more. Um, then flip side of that, then you get a board that is quote-unquote funded. We could argue a bit more that perhaps they actually need to be doing more and, and allow budget for it. Whether And it's not, again, not another those particular guys, but perhaps part of their funding should go to a social media expert yeah. or the equivalent of. You know, they can just provide content. They don't have to be social media gurus. Yeah,
0: and I mean, in, in saying that, I mean, they, did, they put one up, I mean, a couple of weeks ago that was all around the MPI reviewing the walking access stuff. And I mean, that yep. got some good traction. That probably got over 100 shares and some good interaction. So when they're posting about something that people genuinely care about, they do get the get the traction. But it's, I think it just sort of from my perspective shows that how sort of split across a number of different platforms and a number of different areas in terms of our voice you know whether you're a NZDA or a Seeker Foundation or a Game Animal Council or a TAR Foundation you know we are pretty split across a number of different platforms which makes having one sort of voice that gets any kind of traction from a political standpoint a little bit more hard or harder to nail down
1: Yeah. And then, then you flip side to that to us as hunters, too, are bloody ignorant. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Like and, and and even myself, you know what I mean. Like other than the political aspect of it, if something was happening to the seeker deer in the North Island, other than the political aspect of it, it doesn't really affect me. No, you know, and the fact that I don't hunt the seeker. And then there were some North Island guys that you know hunt the the forestries with the dogs, you know, pick up the forestries, and the tar stuff didn't really, maybe, didn't impact them that much. Other other than again the political stuff, you know, and and the why these influences are happening. And I, I understand how important it is for every hunter. I'm not, you know not naive to that effect but you know what i mean like we're so segregated there's nobody that actually is the face of hunting in new zealand for the for the whole that that importantly the hunters would go to
0: yeah and there's no sort of collective way that, that we can consistently contribute you know whether it be from a financial standpoint or from a having a voice or a vote you know as this podcast is gaining a bit more momentum you know we're getting more and more feedback and a lot more emails and uh, messages mm. on um, Instagram and all that kind of stuff from just run-of-the-mill hunters in New Zealand and thanks for that by the way if you're listening we do read yeah. and respond to as many as we can but it, it does show that there's a genuine a genuine appetite out there to be or at least have the ability to be more involved on you know whatever level that you're comfortable with whether it's just mm-hmm. you know contributing every year a little bit money-wise or having an active part of the political side of things which obviously takes a lot more of a time investment. Uh, it doesn't really matter as long as you you know, whatever makes you comfortable, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I think the really important, well, not the really important, but one of the important aspects of that is when the, the hunting community, I guess, start reaching out, they put themselves in an environment to hear the other version or yeah. to actually learn a little bit from, um, because one of one of the things we need to amend or work on with New Zealand is actually understanding more than our own little bubble.
0: Yeah, and I guess sometimes when you do reach out to sort of be a part of it and get some opinions or chase up an an idea or put forward an idea, sometimes the answer you get may not necessarily be the one that you want. <laughs> and I, you know, hmm. genuinely accepting feedback and you know particularly when you come up with an idea if somebody says well you know that's a great idea but here are the barriers in front like how you how you process that criticism or that critique you know it does push people back a little bit like it's it's amazing the the variance of messages we get like some of the messages we get literally someone has made, something's made them mad and they're going off sort of semi-half-cocked and why don't we do this? I think we should do this. And uh, not particularly well thought out. Right through the other end of the spectrum, we're we'll getting some emails now of guys that have clearly spent talking about a particular issue that is relevant to them and really put some time and effort into it. It's a matter of then being able to take that idea or put that energy, I think is probably more um, relevant, that actual sort of passion and energy and put it towards something. I think that's the... Potentially what we're missing a little bit right now in the New Zealand hunting world.
1: Yeah, and like I 100% agree with what you just said. Um, But then also, like one, it's hard to to hear the honest truth back. But then for some of the, and this is going to sound really derogatory, but it's not, the ego gets in the way of those that are there to listen to some of the ideas. Yeah. So um, some of the responses equally aren't that well thought out. If you like, you know, so, so, and then, then the result of that is they get they give negative feedback just to shut the idea down or the the interaction down, which then lets that person leave, believing their idea, their concept, their issue had no real relevance. So it's it's a really poor communication cycle that we have as a hunting community. You know, it's not it's not very often Joe Blodds can sit down with somebody else from joe blogs or somebody that has an authoritative figure and have an actual conversation where ego and i use the word ego in terms of you know it covers a broad spectrum it's not just believing you have got a you know authoritative power it's hard to have those conversations without an influence of that and yeah. that's that's a kiwi culture not just hunting but you know and i, I think that's kind of where we need to make some amending
0: I mean, we, I mean, I know you and I are always cooking up ideas in the background about how we can potentially contribute to this kind of thing and, and give it a bit of a nudge, but it's um, we, we don't have any immediate solutions right now. Maybe one day, Curran.
1: Maybe one day, Matthew. There'll be a few more ideas between that between now and then. Never, <laughs> we're never short
0: of ideas, but I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like We've created an environment for ourselves where you and I can pitch ideas to each other and sort of bounce them around yep. and, you know, we... we
1: Get you honest know. feedback. Yeah, we,
0: we float float them quickly, and they whether we like it or not. Yeah, float them quickly, and they either yeah. work or they don't, and then we move on to the next one. And every so
1: often, one will stick. So that's that. I don't know how we got to that from Tarling, but yeah, that's where that's at. Yeah,
0: that's where that's at. So speaking of a little bit of feedback, there's a have got a few questions that I've um, sort of retained here. Every time I get a, an email or a message from somebody, I always sort of try and distill down what they're asking or what they're saying and mm. and just put it to one side because I figured we'd get a chance to talk about it one day, but
1: yeah, well that that and also I'd probably just like to chime in here before we go too far. All the people that have said they'd love to be on the podcast, and there's a few now, I uh, get lots of messages and stuff like it will happen. We're working on a a theory or a method now, but also uh, I guess as the the hunting show season comes in in New Zealand, we'll be travelling around a bit more so yeah, exactly. We'll cross paths.
0: Yep. Any good suggestions out there? Who want to? Anyone think know anyone or think of anyone that would be good on a podcast? Then flick it our way. We'd love to hear from you. Yep.
1: Let's go help me. Help me with some questions.
0: Okay. So as I was saying, I've distilled <laughs> distilled a few down. Um, one of the ones I get often, which I think is a something that we could probably touch on. And there's a number of different sort of ways we could take this, but I often get guys asking questions about. Um, foreign hunters in New Zealand and um, mm. the ability for you know essentially anyone to come to New Zealand and hunt on public land for free um, is a question that I'm getting more and more um, and then on top yeah. of that because it's there is no regulation it also gives the ability for foreign guides um, to come, or hunting guides to come to New Zealand and operate um, for free. Now, there are some permits you need as a as a professional hunting guide to take people on dock land. Um, but there is, as we know, there's actually little to no enforcement of that, or no, yeah, I was gonna say, no policing one to, on that's pretty weak. <laughs> yeah. So, in theory, sure. In practice, mm, not so much. So, that whole idea and that whole way of thinking is. You know something that guys are running into more and more, just as you know social media grows, and you 've got your Adam green trees out there who are saying, you know come to new zealand it 's free, and you can hunt all you like and if you bring your bow you don 't even need to get any kind of permits other than a dock permit, just go out and hunt um so I think just naturally we 're going to see more and more people from the u s Australia and particularly Europe because hunting 's so restricted in Europe, and we have chamois here, like the idea for yeah. someone from can come from Europe and just hunt as many shammy as they like um blows a lot of people away so what are your yeah, thoughts yeah. on that
1: um well a couple of real quick summaries on it um no business that's not registered in New Zealand should be allowed to guide here and like that's shit yeah um that, that that's just a no from me um, and I don't really care what the justifications are on anyone, like it's just a no um, and then in terms of um, I guess international people coming to hunt um, I, 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 it's not a no but it's definitely needs some policing and some enforcement um, so it's likes of perhaps perhaps they need to go through a guide or They need to, um, I I don't know, maybe do some hunter training or then there needs to be something that was largely run non for profit that went back into New Zealand, maybe. Um, You know, so there was some sort of financial gain in New Zealand for their animals because, you know, like I I think that's probably where the biggest miss is, you know what I mean? Like these guys come in and they shoot a lot of tar, or, or you know, I don't think they shoot that many deer and so forth, I mean, I know there was historically, you know, and I don't just bracket Australians, but Australians shooting some of the, the wapiti, um, you know, sort of velvet or late velvet, um, you yeah. know, but it's more really our alpine species, really, um, and I guess I shouldn't look at it that way because, you know, if the... If the standards set, the standards set for any animal. Yeah. Um. So, but I guess, you know, like uh, I don't know how you the administration involved, in all of a sudden having them pay or or pick up a tag, and who polices it is expensive. Yeah. I mean, and that's the the big issue. Like, it's not we don't have an enforcement board set up. Yeah. So to simply say, well, they can't come in, um, and then you know we could we could put in some semantics like they can't come in with a firearm or they, they can't do this. But then you know too well some New Zealand guys are going to set up a company that hires out firearms to foreigners. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, on a, ticket on, it, like. on, a, on
0: a technical basis, like, in theory, if you're bringing in a firearm into New Zealand, you have to nominate somebody essentially to with be – firearm, yeah. To, for the firearms license to Store. look after you. So yep. outfitters do that for their clients – Guides do that for their clients. Um, So in theory, if some random dude was just coming to New Zealand and wanted to bring a gun, he would have to nominate someone with a firearms licence. So that does slow people down a little bit there. But the reality is... there's been a couple of
1: recent changes in
0: that too. Yeah, there's zero enforcement for it. Unless something happens, there's not really any repercussion. So, I suspect there's a lot of people going out into the hills that have essentially have come into the country, nominated somebody, and then hasn't seen them since they left the airport. I suspect that happens a little bit more often. But dialing it all back, dialing it all back. The issue with, and I agree with you. I would like to see some kind of um, foreign license system put into place. So if you're a foreigner to come and hunt in New Zealand. either have to go through a New Zealand guide um, or in some way pay for a license or permit um, to, you know, hunter animals. But all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. is null and void. Our biggest issue is as long as our animals are designated as pests, there will never be any changes to that nature. So in order for DOC or any other government body to start charging anything or enforcing anything they would also at the same time have to admit that those animals had some kind of value and as soon as they admit there is some kind of value to them monetary wise it means it changes their status which our current government or current you know Minister of Conservation has publicly said she's against tooth and nail. Um, does,
1: does it change their status? Well it it, it and my only my only thought on that is partly from hearing it out loud then how did we do that when the, when there was a rabbit board and a possum board was that because they were paid for management not the animal
0: i would say so yeah i mean yeah. It, it, i mean even if it's not a legislative change you know the yeah. only person that can really charge for dock permits or enforce that people can't go hunting on public land without a hunting license or a guide is doc so they would have to, even if it's just a, on a verbal level, admit that there is some value to our wild game animals. And as soon as that happens, that sort of opens the door for something that they're fighting tooth and nail, which is changing you know, certain herds in New Zealand to, away from being a pest to what they call a, a herd of special interest, which is what yeah. the New Zealand Game Animal Council was originally set up to do is set up those New Zealand herds of special interest um, and that way they can be more effectively managed rather than exterminated slash controlled. But, you know, our current Department of Conservation, that is a massive no-go and they will fight that um, tooth and nail to avoid that happening. As soon as that changes, then, you know, essentially we have a window to manage those herds because mm. legally, right now, managing a wild animal on public land in New Zealand is technically illegal.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. But uh, I still, I, I believe there's got to be other ways that we could make a a, a monetary step, and 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 be it. Be it that they're the, the paying for an alpine experience, like, is it is the wording important? Yeah, it, yeah it, I know, I know it's only semantics, but but if that, if what where I'm going with this is if, if the only reason we're not doing something financially about it is because of the government's fear to change the value or the perception of value on our pests, quote unquote, um, then could a wording change or, or a different delivery of the same thing not be enough to start monetizing this? And I and I, I mean monetizing it for New Zealand. Like there's no – I'm not talking about individual boards or companies set up or anything like that. Like straight out, if people are going to c- come and hunt here, then at the moment perhaps it just goes straight back into the Department of Conservation. Yeah. And I know, I know – Even saying that out loud, I know it's like, well, why would we give it to them? What do they do for the hunting and stuff? But it's got to go to somebody. Well, it's Um, what Game Animal Council tried to do 18 months ago.
0: And, you know, I could talk about this a long time and how their delivery of it didn't really work. But what they tried to do was um, essentially put uh, a tax or a, a levy on the export of game animals out of New Zealand so yep. you could come here and hunt in theory come here and hunt as a an Australian hunter shoot yourself a tar and then when you want if you wanted to take it home then you would have to pay an, an export levy but the trouble is yep. because there's no sort of way to enforce that they in my opinion and well then they just turned around and said oh, okay all of the hunting outfitters in New Zealand all your clients are going to have to pay this levy um and they started; it just it went from what should have been funded by, you know, recreational free range animals in New Zealand. Um, should have been funding the management of those animals. It quickly turned into a bunch of outfitters who shoot eighty percent of their animals behind a high fence, high fence. paying for ninety percent. You know, paying ninety percent of that levy for something that well, they don't and then then use. then the argument.
1: Is- then the argument fell into the hands of they're actually farm animals, which whole other topic, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. it,
0: it got real messy. got real messy. It was, they went about it in a way that was fairly ineffective and it got dropped um, for that reason. But I mean, that was sort of what they, you know, were trying to do, I guess. I don't know. I'd love to hear what the actual intention behind it was. Well, I know what the intention was. It was to try and get, the Game Animal Council, some kind of source of um, annual revenue. Um, but I don't think, and it doesn't look like, that's going to happen.
1: Mm. No. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Whew. Yeah, other than that, then they've just got to go with guides. It's, like, it's how it is. Um, you know, how it is for me if I want to go to Canada right now. Yeah,
0: well, it's how it is over 90 90- nine percent of the world if you want to go hunting anywhere you've got to go with a guide yep. or an outfitter. And that's why yep. people are so shocked to hear that uh um you can come and do it in New Zealand and, you know, particularly if you're yep. a bow hunter. Just go online, get your dock permit, away you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then the thing that'll that'll then pop up a lot of backyard guides if you like. Um yeah, but I guess if they're running on dock concession and they're paying and following the laws in terms of that... Well, they do have that lockdown
0: um, in DOC's defence. Like, if you are guiding on public land, you're supposed to have a guiding concession, which yeah, generally yeah, you have to you're do supposed to NZ Professional Hunting Guides Association training and get that certification, and with that comes your dock concession. So um, I don't think that's the only way you can get it, but it's certainly the most logical way to...
1: Yeah, but, but remembering, like, it comes as... Guiding as a definition So I can't Even if you could get a concession over there I still can't go hunting with you No. So it's like if I don't know Said person from Canada wanted to come over and go Tar hunting with me As a friend That's still guiding Yeah it is You know but I can't even do that over there So what I'm saying is if he's just coming over with me And I know a lot of this happens Um then I wouldn't necessarily have to get a concession.
0: No, no. Technically,
1: it's- legally, if I was exchanging money and all that sort of stuff, you know, I've got to get a concession. I've got to do tax or all that. Like I get, I understand fully the legalities of business. But what I'm saying is, if Joe Blog, that I knew through a friend of a friend, wanted to come over and I'd already drawn, say, a tar ballot block, I was like, oh shit, man, there's a seat here. Um, like where, where does the because it's very different to somebody that's coming over to do what they want for weeks at an end, but um yeah i don't I, you know i can't I don't have that luxury to go that way yeah. even even knowing the same people there's a there's a there's a couple of little ones, but yeah,
0: the reality is we're a long way off being able to police that in any which way or form, and I think there needs to be a lot of stuff happen as a precursor before we'll get ourselves in a position where we can sort of actively monitor and manage you know, the foreign hunting yeah. thing on public land.
1: Yeah, so there's bit, I guess back to, back to the original part of that. Um, surely, the, like, I guess there'll be some some of these international outfitters will have it figured out, but how can they run a business here and not pay tax here and all that sort of stuff?
0: Yeah, well, it's it's not legal, but the thing, like, there's just no way to police that, right? I mean...
1: Like if the if said person in Canada says that he's going to start doing tar hunts, transactions all the money in Canada, then they just literally fly over here together. Yeah. And I guess that's hard to police.
0: It's very hard to police, and I you know I don't I don't know that it's happening. It might not be happening, but it also could. Very oh, I know well it's happening. happening. I know it happens with yeah. fishing guides for sure, and there's been a.
1: No, no, no. It definitely happens with
0: hunting for sure. Right. So I mean that is what it is. And it's kind of hard yep. hard pill to swallow. I mean, one way we could sort of restrict it to some point. I mean, if you, can you enter? I don't know if you can or not because I've I've never tried. But can you enter a New Zealand hunting ballot if you're a foreigner?
1: I would think so. Like, well, they certainly can for um, the wapiti because you know definitely Australians are, and that are putting in for that. Yeah, I, I I couldn't see why not.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's some way way you could restrict it. But I mean, it's an interesting thing because New Zealand is, and sort of as a general policy, we've got a very sort of open door policy to tourists and people coming over and making the most of what we have in New Zealand. Um, And that's always been the case. But as we see more and more people come, and, you know, and, and Doc, I'm sure, is feeling the pinch of increased numbers of people walking you know, all of our walking tracks, particularly the mm. most popular ones, you know, that...
1: Um, the- well, know Stefan, when we had the training course here, he was telling me some. this is very poor of me, but somewhere up north where he, he hunts often. And he said he used to sort of walk in four hours, um, you know, just straight push on the track to get out to where he used to hunt and then he'd hunt a couple of the big valleys from that hut out the back. Um, and then he's been away overseas for a couple of three years, came back, and he said walking out on that same trail, it was just covered in human feces and rubbish, got out to the hut. The hut was full, um, basically all foreigners, and they all frowned upon him for having a rifle. He said he felt like a stranger, like he felt like he was in the wrong in a backcountry hunt <laughs> on Department of Conservation land.
0: Yeah, interesting, to, eh?
1: And that, that, to give some context, that's a guy that has worked for DOC, has planted... Thousands, of hundreds of thousands of trees given direct back directly to the environment that he loves. And then he's the one that felt like an outsider.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, at at some point, because I mean, you, you got the big walks. So if you take the Tongariro Alpine crossing, right, you've got all those hundreds of thousands of people doing it a year. And the amount of cost that the New Zealand taxpayer fronts up for to maintain that track yep. and literally fly out tons and tons of, you know, emptying dunnies basically, you know, to yeah. get it off the side of the mountain. That all comes from our tax money. Like the dock budget yeah. is like 460 odd million. dollars. That's their budget every year. Mm. And that goes, a lot of that now goes into maintaining those tracks so that more and more tourists can come and use our public land right and I get that tourism's a big part of you know the New Zealand economy what's our GDP it's an earner it's a massive earner and I get there's literally thousands of businesses in New Zealand that benefit directly from that and I think that tourism is great but at some point there needs to be some kind of check and balance in terms of those tourists coming over and giving back directly to the conservation and management of that kind of thing Mm. whereas right now they do it for free I mean they pay Hot fees, you know, and on certain tracks, but not all of them. And if you're just going in like, you can do the Tarong Alpung the Tongariro Alpine crossing in a day. So there's no real, you know, dock doesn't. Yeah, benefit. it's, it's a real.
1: It's a massive slippery slope because I I I totally agree with what you're saying, but then you go the other way. You know, through my time in England and Scotland and family over there and stuff like that. And you go and do some walks over in that environment and you walk into a remote area and there's a lodge. And I mean, lodge. And that's because it, once people start paying, then the expectation increases and then it becomes what are we getting for our value? And, and you know, like it's just a continual circle of, of impact on the environment. Yeah, I
0: mean, there certainly is a slippery slope. There need to be some parameters put around it. But I think that, you know, what worked 20 years ago may not be fit for purpose today. You know what I mean? And as yeah. tourism numbers increases and the number of people using those facilities increases and the amount of impact that that number of people is having on their environment, at some point there needs to be some check and balance in terms of either A, limiting numbers or B, um people giving back and then to loop it back to the hunting, you know, if that becomes a thing and we do go down that track, then adding, you know, being able to apply for a dock hunting permit and having to pay for that as a as a foreign hunter or having to nominate who your guide is in order to mm-hmm. apply for that permit and that guide therefore has yep. to have their dock concession and have done their necessary training, that's not as big of a jump.
1: Yeah, but the, the big jump in that probably is <clears throat> the legality enforcement like we're, if we if if we talk about a canadian model if if cuz the first thing i heard when you said that is like well if somebody just knew somebody that had a new zealand firearms license and they put their name on the permit and then they will hunt him with that permit but what 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 would be the legal ramification if they got caught whereas if i did something like that in canada it'd be jail but we that's because they have the authority to impose or, or the middleman, you know what i mean whereas here in new zealand we can impose that but then you know four guys come over from switzerland and they're hunting on a dock permit that's got my name on it because that was the cheapest way to apply or free to apply who who actually gets them in trouble yeah. and what is the trouble they get in i mean the reality is current i think that You know, people would self
0: regulate to a certain point. Like, if you said that was the law, then, you know, I'd like to think that a vast majority of people would obey the law. And then every so often, someone would disobey it and then get caught through other people reporting them or making a mistake. And then I think, you know, and Canada uses this policy a lot as well, because, you know, despite the fact that they have their own enforcement agency, like the conservation officers are all over BC, but it's a very, Big place, so actual on the ground mm. enforcement is very difficult. So what they do is when they do catch somebody, they drag them over the coals and make it very public. So there's sort of an element yep. of um, fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah you exactly. Like.
1: You've got to make an example. Absolutely. But but yeah, I just the one thing that comes from that, and it probably goes right back to our original conversation now, is that's because every hunter in BC or Canada grew up. Arguably united in the way hunters are and the way the le- restriction and legislation works. Here, back to a segregated model, if said person knew the people that were getting in trouble or didn't really care about the tar that they shot, or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. Because the people
0: coming over here would have grown up in North America or in Europe where it's restricted, so they'll know full well they're breaking a law.
1: Yeah, and then true. in
0: New Zealand. Like I honestly don't think that the average Kiwi hunter would like the idea of somebody coming over here doing it for free if that was against the law so I honestly think that it would probably wouldn't require you know somebody with a badge standing at the end of every you know walking track in (laughs) New Zealand checking people when they come out I I think it would probably like we're not a huge country and we've got a lot of people who spend a lot of time in the mountains who would sort of regulate their own patch they would know if there was a group of you know, four Swiss Swiss guys at a hut that didn't have a guide with them, that shit would spread real quick. So I don't think we'd be that far away from it. Mm. But again, you know, legislation-wise and certainly you know, attitudes within the government right now, uh, there's no way that any of this would happen. But anyway, I think we've chewed that fat enough, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, geez, yeah. Okay. (laughs) You didn't uh, throw a bit on that draft skin the other day?
1: No, I didn't. (laughs) <laughs> um <laughs> hot topic just now um oh look to, to be fair just before you
0: to launch <laughs> for those of yeah. people who are like what do you mean um uh, there was a, a someone who will remain nameless put a tanned giraffe skin that he had shot legally um on a guided hunt in south africa up on trade me for sale the other day and good old stuff.co.nz picked it up like they do to create a good bit of bloody clickbait? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was a lot of, I guess, direct uh, communication, maybe through social media, was directed straight at, at the guy that shot the animal and listed it for sale. Um, my my actual thought on it when I when I looked at it and saw it, I was just, I don't know if upset's the right word, but I'm not getting emotional about it, but I was really disappointed at the way, one, our media, and two, our non-hunting or uninformed public really banded together really aggressively to call him out and call out what he does for recreation out. Like, that, that was where it really sat for me. I was like... You know, that was that was what came to me. I didn't, I didn't care who shot it. I didn't care that it had been shot full stop. You know, obviously I'm a hunter. Um, I knew it was done legally. I knew he had all the paperwork requirements. Um, what he was selling was just a floor rug. You know, I've got one sitting here in front of me now of a cow. I've got them in other rooms of deer and tar. You know, like, the, the item itself wasn't wrong. But when they had the chance to bring it up in the media it was essentially like a Bambi story. It was like said little girl was looking through trading with her mother, which I'm not sure whoever, I don't know how many families do that as a collective family time <laughs> activity. But, but you know, like they were looking through it together and then they saw a photo of this guy cuddling the giraffe and then unfortunately mum had to tell the daughter that that wasn't what it was involved and the daughter started crying. And then then the next hit on stuff or, you know, on on the the um, news article was you know, MPI were involved or SPCA were involved or, you know, like organisations, you know, it went straight to that level. And I was just like, well, how has this happened? Like how are we making news out of this? Yeah. You know, like it wasn't – Trade Me, they, they openly said that, that, you know, there was nothing wrong with the, the auction. Um, you've got to click on it to get it. Like it doesn't doesn't randomly fill your newsfeed, yeah. um, you know. And then he withdrew it himself, you know. And I get, you know, and I I know the guy and he knows me. Uh, maybe some of his comments are a little bit hot, but it's because he's passionate and defends what he does. And and I, I am not going to question that. I, I could I could sort of chirp in and say, oh, what might have done that a bit different or might have gone a bit softer there, but I'm not going to. Take away the fact that he's willing to defend the fact that he still hunts, likes to hunt, did it legally, was selling a product because it didn't fit in his house. Like, that's how simple it was. Yeah. He had an item in his house that didn't fit, so he thought he'd put it on Trade Me. Yeah. Like, like, like a, do you know how much shit I've sold on Trade Me because I don't need it anymore or don't want it? Yeah. Well, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It, to me,
0: it's just, it's all around disappointment because it just highlights to me how, well, there's three things.
1: First thing, the I, environment we live in is
0: changing, Yeah, real the quick. environment that we're living in is changing. B, people are hugely ignorant and uninformed in New Zealand when it comes to um, wildlife management and sustainable population models and legal management through hunting. And C, the fact that the media will literally put up anything and frame it in any way they want – to elicit an emotional response on a subject just to get clicks. In my opinion, that is the death throes of a dying medium because the only way they can get people to read their shit these days, unless there's a major incident happening, is to make it as controversial and as emotional as possible. And unfortunately, that kind of article, the only thing that it does directly is hurt the
1: wildlife that giraffe. was... Well, the, yes and no. Like I'd say, also collectively, it armors the uninformed with anti-hunting. Well, it lets
0: them continue to think that they're right, that they know what they, you know, they think that they yeah. that that kind of reaction is normal and acceptable. The thing is, look, I don't. I'm not saying that I would go out there and shoot a giraffe. I'm not saying that everybody in New Zealand should be okay with going out there and shooting a giraffe. What I'm saying is, should that kind of response like had to explain to her daughter why that person wasn't that wasn't hugging the giraffe what kind of parent would let their child hug a wild giraffe that's flat out silly like if you went to try and hug a wild giraffe or any other animal in (laughs) Africa for that matter (laughs) Mm. like there's no like it's not in a petting zoo You know, it's not been habituated to the point where it's brain-dead living in a 10 by 10 square paddock and has to be hand-fed every day to survive. That is a wild animal, and male giraffes are incredibly aggressive, particularly when they're breeding. If you tried to sneak up on a wild giraffe,
1: it would defend itself accordingly. So, Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of education required to get all that across. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I... I like I'm I'm all for that education being shared but but for me it was just like just disappointing to think that here in New Zealand that that you know that might be a a, a lead story that he was selling a Jurassic on trade me there's not a single
0: person that was involved in writing that article or commenting on that article that has the first clue of what it's actually like when it comes to you know Game management in Africa
1: They 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 fail You know Because I come from a, a print and media background These people now They're sort of In these environments Where It's tough to make Article You know Tough to Tough to be headlining So they Through their need to I guess Sell They They forget that They actually take on A role as an influencer Like from, from However many people Read that article It didn't change Any of the Hunter's beliefs or thoughts or actions All it did was change those that were uninformed Yeah That's So it did nothing There was nothing neutral about it Nah And that that, that Yeah that's It's the death throes of modern media my friend Yeah It's a It's, it's a real shame Um, I, I actually to be fair Feel a little bit sorry for the guy that got dragged into it You know I know now he's got a, a wife and a young kid and stuff like phew, yeah, like like I've said. And he, he knows it, like I'd I'd probably wouldn't have answered some of the stuff the way he answered or whatever, but that's me versus him. That's not right or wrong. You know, what he did wasn't wrong, so I partly feel sorry for the way it ended for him.
0: Yeah. Anyway, that's enough on that subject. I just <laughs> Yeah most people in this world don't hunt, have no idea about hunting. That kind of thing mm. invokes a an emotional response, which I understand. They've been told that You know, the animals of Africa live in a big circle of life and are best mates and stand out and are happy. uh, That's just unrealistic view of the natural world. But that's life. It's something Mm. as hunters we need to get better at communicating, I guess, when that kind of thing comes up. Disappointing to me, too. I mean, do you remember when the bunch of the Crusaders boys went, you know, hunting in in South Africa after a... After a rugby game, and they just got dragged through the coals, like dragged mm. through the coals for doing something that was you know totally legal, sustainable, and probably benefited well definitely benefited. I did the research to figure out where they were, one hundred percent benefited the animals in that environment, and yet they were yeah. vilified for it and rather than have the long and hard conversation around explaining their motivation and mo- and justification behind it and proving the fact that it wasn't this horribly thing that they'd done, they just walked away from it, said, sorry, mm. that shouldn't have happened, and I guarantee now that they're not allowed to do that kind of thing because it's just not worth the media fallout.
1: Yeah, not not while they're carrying a Crusader bag anyway. Yeah, which is sad. Go, hit me with the next one.
0: Well, I don't have any too many more. All I've got oh. is let's talk about Matt's hunting coming up in B.C., because that's exciting. Okay, well,
1: yeah, do that. It's
0: exciting for me.
1: It's just going to kind of annoy me a little bit, but anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I've done what I do every year. I basically went ahead and bought every tag that I could buy. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're sitting up above my my desk at the moment, inspiration to get myself into a little bit of shape than I was for the hunting season last year. Yep. Um, So... Put in for a number of different LEHs around British Columbia, which is our limited entry hunting, which is the equivalent of a a ballot in New Zealand. So you pay six bucks fifty or something per species, and you can put in two choices, so a first choice and a second choice. So you know you can put in a ballot for elk, you can put in a ballot for sheep, mountain goat, basically everything in BC. So if there's a an area where um is relatively easily accessed generally they put it into an LEH to stop every Tom, Dick, and Harry going in there and, and hunting. Because there are a lot of hunters in British Columbia and some of the animals yeah. can't sustain, you know, thousands of people going in and hunting that same same population. So it is really well managed. So I've got all my LEHs in. That drawer nice. is in about three weeks. So that could look out. change my plan. But right now I've got a couple of buddies who Fall into the hipster hunter realm again So two of them have, have <laughs> A big uh, Joe Rogan Cam Haynes podcast listeners uh, Boom Grew up, one of them grew up in Ireland And the other one grew up in sort of downtown Vancouver um, Quinn, you know who you are buddy yep. uh, <laughs> So he's got into the bow and arrow stuff So he has been religiously Shooting his bow basically every day For probably close to 6 or 7 months now um, With the idea That he wants to hunt a a blacktail, coastal blacktail with his bow, and same with Ronan, the Irish guy, the good buddies, so they've been sort of going through the journey together, so I've got a couple of um, weekend hunts with those guys um, that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, My bow is back in New Zealand, so I won't be joining in, but uh, I'll be sort of mentoring them through the process, because I mean it's a big jump for someone who's never hunted before. Yeah, it is, you know, going from <laughs> zero hunting to trying to get something with your bow. To if they actually manage to yeah, harvest then not- something, then you know, there's we only sort of take it for granted in New Zealand as as hunters. We've sort of learned how to butcher and and process and carry yeah. and you know all that stuff sort of comes as second nature if you've been doing it your whole life. Yeah. But these guys, but yeah, so that's that, and then. Hopefully heading back up in northern BC for a little bit of guiding and potentially my father is going to come over uh, for a moose hunt for his 60th birthday. So those of you who have listened to our post-raw debrief, you would have got to listen to old Roscoe, so that'll be entertaining.
1: (laughs) So that'll be good. And you might have to come over for that, might you? Yep, just... um... Getting some logistics sorted out, I guess. <laughs> Submitting the necessary paperwork. Yeah, it'll be a tight push for me because, intention wise, would be to get back for the seeker show. So, yeah, exactly. We do have some limitations on that. That'll be exciting. So, what what are you hoping for on the tag wise? What's what well, you know, what's? Hopefully, I get an elk in October. That's sort of what
0: I've. Ooh. That's where my I'm real excited for. So, it will be a an elk on the mainland here in BC. I put in for a tag. Sort of um, access is real hard, like real hard. But what that does is it sort of limits the number of people who put in for that tag, yeah. which increases your odds of getting it. So my thinking is, if I put in for that, there's a good chance I'll, well, a decent chance I'll get it. And if I get it, then I'll solve the access problem when I come to it. Well, so you can do it by boat, like or yeah, you could take a boat up there. Uh, one thing that I'm looking at the moment is uh, I got a buddy over here that owns a uh, owns a franchise for an inflatable paddleboard company. Mm-hmm. So you can drive up one side of the inlet and then it's quite a big bit of water. Um, It'll be sort of the equivalent of crossing a fjord in Fjordland.
1: <laughs> right. But
0: yeah. I figure if I drive up, park on the opposite side, because the road ends, he's got these <laughs> gimmicky, well, semi-gimmical, like promotional paddleboards that they're called, like they super XLs, which you can put about five people on. So it's like a giant right. inflatable paddleboard, right? So my mm. intention would be either to hire a kayak or take a paddleboard and then tow one of those across with my gear. Yeah. Or get myself an inflatable boat or something and boat across. How do you, the How do
1: you? I was going to say, how do you pack out all the meat on one of them things? Like weight loading would be all right.
0: Yeah, I think it would be as long as it wasn't too windy. Right, that should be your limitation. So you'd have to give yourself a few days, but by that stage they're probably through the rut, so it would be a a challenging hunt at the best of times um, yeah, yeah, and those out when they go to ground in that thick stuff as you know are pretty hard to to come, abo- yeah, come by. sure
1: have you been have you will, will you so you'll find it in three weeks? what will you go in there in the summer and look for some good good grassy valleys and stuff like that like what are you going to be potentially i um
0: would be interested to have a look in up in there. I've got a buddy that went up in there um, a couple of years ago that had a little bit of a look around. But to be honest with you, the logistics of getting in there for a summer scout probably a bit too much. It might be just a yeah. one roll of the dice and Google Earth might be my mate.
1: Yeah, just I guess because if it's post-rut like that, being able to hunt in the high feed areas would be, yeah, would be it, my train of thought anyway.
0: I, I think so. High feed areas. And then in October, you know, might be starting to get a bit of snow potentially in there I guess we are pretty south so maybe not but it would certainly be not um, beautiful weather so that will also play a factor yeah hopefully I draw that that'll be an awesome October if I do if I don't uh, draw that in October then I will probably just concentrate a bit more on the mule deer Um, there's a couple of one big burn in particular that happened a few years ago here in BC um, that is definitely going to be worth checking out this year,
1: and then right when you reference burn and the need to check it out now, that's due to the grass regrowing. Yeah, so the burn or the feed
0: burns, well, forest fires here in Canada and B.C. You kind of like they're actually really good for habitat for game animals. You know, two or three years later, um, mm. that grass really comes back strongly the animals really rely on those burnt areas for feed, shelter, and protection against predators. So if you've got an area that was burnt that's um, south-facing, being in the Northern Hemisphere, it's opposite to New Zealand, obviously. So our south-facing faces here in the Northern Hemisphere get the most sort of sunlight. That way it's it's warmer and there's more feed. Those south-facing burns that happened, say, two or three years ago, uh, tend to hold a lot of game. And the deer that live in there throughout the year tend to grow quite good heads because they've got plenty of feed. So um, that's going to be worth checking out. And then November, supposed to be November 1st, but I've just figured out that the World Cup final's on November 2nd, I think. So might push (laughs) that back a couple of days. Um, We're going to go on a five to eight day backpack trip in the back country of BC looking for a big mule deer in the rut. So that's... Sort of going to be my... Did You've got quite a bit of hunting coming up. I do actually, yeah. It's quite exciting. Damn it. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. That with Mike? Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking weekly basically at the moment, checking out different spots and formulating plans. But we've hunted essentially both ends of it, um, but never linked the two. And there's a bunch of sort of area in the middle that we've looked at but haven't really hunted because it's always been too far away from both ends to um, spend any time but we're going to hopefully be in decent enough shape that we can walk right through and spend some time in that sort of mid zone which will most likely hold the biggest deer because it's the hardest to get to.
1: Well I get uh, and that but then also when you start talking BC November the weather's going to be a contributor in that too.
0: Yeah so that first week you either you know within that first 10 days of November in that country you can sort of expect the first decent snow you know and I've been in that first week and either had no snow on the ground and been not too bad right through to snow on the ground minus 15 so it's generally when that temperature changes and you know last year we were watching deer up on top of the mountain chasing those around that were up to their chests in snow. In powder, yeah. So, weather wise, it is really challenging, generally not that pleasant, and particularly if you're hunting, there's quite a few burns around through that area, too. Hunting in those steep burns that are a few years old, so a lot of those trees are now fallen over. It's um, physically, yeah, so it's
1: really like tough. windfall here, but but yeah, yeah,
0: big scale windfall in the snow and steep and very unforgiving. Cool, though, eh? there are certainly times during the hunt that, hunt that you second guess your motivation for doing it in the first place. <laughs> so yeah that's my that's my fall coming up I'm very excited
1: yeah well you should be though
0: yeah oh well have you got any other things we've, we've been going for an hour and ten so we um.
1: I guess it's just to chirp back to where we sort of I guess we interleaded with it but if anybody's got any I guess topic or conversation um, or any suggestions or, or people that they think should be on the podcast uh, let us know because yeah we now have a a format that will enable us to do high quality podcasts quite easily so yeah let us know yeah perfect all right pal
0: g'day thanks for listening to the educated hunter podcast there are a number of ways you can connect with myself matthew gibson or my partner in crime Curran island at the educated hunter and the hub for all of this is our website theeducatedhunter.com our instagram page is at the educated hunter our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in new zealand and around the world and lastly you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode other than that thanks very much for listening and i hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away